Thank you for listening to First Variant United Methodist Church's podcast. This week, we begin our new series, Real Life, Real Community. And now here's Martha with our message. Our scripture this morning is from the third chapter of the book that we call Colossians. It's actually a letter written to a community of faith who were trying to, well, I guess I should say who were struggling on figuring out how to live in this new Christian way of life. I invite you to hear these words, Colossians uh, 3, beginning in verse 12. As God's chosen, holy, and beloved, clothe yourself with compassion kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. No one goes hiking alone in Alaska. Julia had saved for years to hike many trails, many parks, many mountain peaks in Alaska. As was her custom, she would always meet with the park ranger where she was going to hike first to first of all let somebody know where she was going to be and to potentially learn some places to avoid or places that she most definitely wants to check out. She started her hiking adventure in Alaska at Far North Bicentennial Park on the outskirts of Anchorage where she met with the park ranger. And in that conversation, the park ranger shared with her bear attacks usually happen when people go by themselves. Don't go alone. Alone was the very reason that Julia took this trip. She often preferred to hike alone because she just liked to be outside, outdoors, in nature, in creation. She enjoyed the the sights and the sounds of nature, the solitude of outside. It just seemed to quiet the clamor in her mind. Don't go alone was the last thing she wanted to hear. Being an avid hiker of our own beloved AT, Appalachian Trail, she knew how to interact with wildlife. This was not new to her. So she thought, I can handle this. So undeterred by the warning, guess what she did? She went hiking alone. About three miles into the hike, she found herself caught between mama bear and a baby cub. Mama bear had been somewhere off the the trail, so she didn't see her, but as Julia was walking, what she didn't know is that baby cub was headed directly to her, and there she was, 
right in the middle. I'll spare you the details of what happened. But suffice to say, thankfully, there was another group of hikers not too far away that heard the commotion. Rushed to the rescue and with all their bear etiquette, if there is such a thing, with all the bear etiquette and noise making and bear pepper spray that they could muster, Julia escaped with minor injuries, thankfully. But she learned a lifelong valuable lesson that day. We are safer and stronger together. Don't go alone had whole new meaning for her that day. We live in a society that places heavy emphasis on individuality. We pride ourselves on going it alone, on being able to do things of our own willpower, our own strength. It's human nature, and it starts at a very young age. There was a time when my daughter was, I think, about three. We had just finished Thanksgiving dinner, and all of the older cousins decided they wanted to go for a walk outside in the neighborhood. She, being three, of course, they were responsible for her, so they were going to load her up in the wagon and pull her around. So I started to help her get her shoes on. She was just learning to tie at that point and put her coat on. And she said to me, my do it myself. She got that from her father, obviously. It would never come from me. But it's human nature to want to do things on our own. It's not a bad thing. It comes in handy sometimes. However, the Bible teaches repeatedly, and Jesus modeled for us, that we were created for community. Now some of you are probably thinking, hold on Martha, you just spent six weeks telling us that we were created for relationship. And you're right, I did, and we are. We were. But closely tied to being created for relationship is being created to live in community or communion with each other. Throughout our entire Real Life, Real Relationship sermon series, we talked about the idea that we need each other, that often within our faith journey, if we feel like we're not growing in our faith journey, often a missing ingredient is working with each other, leaning into and leaning on each other. But it's not just one-on-one or two or three or four, just, it's not just the whole small groups of people. It's a community as a whole that we were called to live in. We see this in the very beginning. We see it in the Trinity. God himself works in community with himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We see it in the creation stories. Yes, they were created out of and for relationship, but they all lived in community together. If we look at the creation stories and we see when they were banished from the garden... People began to live in in family units and families known as tribes, which eventually gave way to kingdoms. And it's not just found in the Bible, it's found throughout history and anthropology. People have always lived together in communities, in communion with each other. As the people were delivered from Egypt, as Moses led them out of Egypt... In Leviticus, God said to them, you are a people, you are my people, and I will be your God. Fast forward some several thousand years after the resurrection of Jesus, and we can see throughout the New Testament in all of the letters that were written that the people that we call the church lived as a community. They worshipped together, they prayed together, they ate together, they supported each other, and 
Sometimes they even called each other out. They learned how to discern God's will with some really tough issues, some tough issues that today, quite frankly, very few churches would survive. Community is what we were made to live in. Now, if we look up the, de- the definition of community, we'll find a very simple definition that most of us are probably familiar with. A community can be a place, a geographic place, but it also can be people who have common characteristics. They have fellowship with each other, common interests, common attitudes, common goals. Any common commonality constitutes a community. I'll give you an example. I am a yogi which basically means I do yoga. I'm one of those nutcases that's addicted to yoga. In fact, my community of yoga is a special breed of crazy. We are up at 6 a.m. in a 100-degree room doing yoga. A special breed of crazy altogether. Some of you are, are part of swim communities, and the swim communities aren't just for the youth. You parents know about it as well. The parents are a community. You're united in that common goal. There's rotary communities. There's book communities. There's all sorts of things that unite us together in a community. But let me ask you this. In all the communities of which you are a part, does everyone in that community have everything in common? Do you all believe alike, think alike? Do you spend your spare time the same way? Do you have the same interest outside of that one? Or is the common cause that binds you together the thing that binds you despite the differences that you have? The Apostle Paul, in the scripture that we read, was writing to a community of people who were trying to figure out how to be followers of Jesus with their problems and their differences. Paul himself had never been to this community, this Colossians community. They lived in a place called Colossae, which was located in modern-day Turkey, sort of the the tip of Eastern Europe and and sandwiched between the tip of Eastern Europe and, and the Middle East, the Mediterranean Sea and the Baltic Sea, Turkey. That's where Colossae was located. Paul himself had never been there, but the founder of this particular community of faith, this church in Colossae, had written to Paul several times, and Paul had responded saying, you guys are doing a good job, keep it up. But this time, he had written, the founder had written and said, we got trouble. These people don't know how to behave. He didn't say those words exactly, but something very similar. They're having trouble living together with their new identity and all of the differences that they have. Like many believers today, they wanted the benefits of knowing Jesus without actually having to make any changes. So Paul writes to them, writes this letter, and in the entire third chapter of Colossians, we didn't read the the first 11 verses, but in the entire third chapter of Colossians, Paul is telling them to take off their old ways, just just like you would take off dirty clothes at the end of the day. Paul is saying, take off those old garments, those old ways of living, and put on this new self. Hence the reason he uses these words, clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with patience. Bear with one another, forgive one another. But why was it that he was having to give them those instructions? Just because it was morally and ethically the right thing to do? No. It was because of whom they now represented. 
hits the reason Paul writes, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, live this way. The Apostle Peter wrote to a group of people in the same region, maybe not the exact same people, but a group of people in the same region in his letter, the first 1 Peter chapter 2, he writes similar words telling them, you are a chosen race, a holy nation, God's own people. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Why is that important? The people in this particular region to whom, to whom we know Paul wrote to, and most likely the majority of the ones that Peter wrote to, were what we call Gentiles, which in our day in language we would just simply call them pagans. But they were people who did not have Jewish ancestry. They didn't have the benefits of knowing Jesus' history, those what we call the Old Testament, all the stories of Moses and David and the deliverance and the number of times God tried to step in and rescue the people. They didn't know all of that story. They were a people estranged, they thought, from God's love. They did not know God. But because of Jesus and his life, his death, and his resurrection, they were now able to know that they were full recipients of God's love and God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's redemption. They were now God's people. All other classifications that they brought to the table, Roman, Greek, Syrian, male, female, rich, poor, slave, servant, master, any other classification that you could imagine took a back seat to being called God's people. But it wasn't because they were special. There was nothing special about this people, this group of people. It's because they were charged with a special task. They were to be God's community of faith in that region. They were to be a witness to that region of God's love and how God can bring people together. Hence the reason they're called holy and chosen. Now the risk for them, for the ancient Israelites and for followers of Jesus today For communities of faith today, the risk is that we can easily shift into thinking that we're holy or we're special or that we have all the answers. Often that's perception of people outside the church looking in at people inside the church. And the risk is that we often think we all have to think alike, feel alike, believe alike. And friends, that's not only impossible, it's unbiblical. Hence the reason Paul puts so much emphasis on needing to clothe ourselves with Christ's love, which binds everything together in harmony and unity. The harmony and the unity doesn't mean there aren't differences. It means being called God's people overshadows the differences. They, back then, and we today, are called to be a community that loves each other despite the differences. In fact, I would go so far as to say the greater the differences, the greater the witness of God's prevailing love in our community. There's a parable that Rennie likes to share with us. The parable of the long spoons. It actually has roots all the way back, I believe, in the 
14th century. And as is, as is um, usual when you share a parable verbally over time, there's all sorts of versions out there of this particular parable. But the parable goes, the story goes, that a man had asked God the difference between heaven and hell. And so God took the man into a room, through a doorway, into a room where there's a big table and a, and a big, massive, aromatic pot of stew on a cold day like we had last week, kind of thing that you would want. And there's spoons, long spoons around the table. Only the people sitting around the table are thin and emaciated and starving. The spoons are so long that they can't get into the stew and feed themselves. They keep missing their mouth. So they're starving. So then God takes the man through another doorway. Same scene. Big, massive table with a feast of massive stew sitting on the center of the table. Same long spoons. Only the people are full and fit and healthy. And they're laughing and they're chatting and they're just carrying on. And the man looks at God and he says, I, I, I don't get it. What's the difference? Same stew, same long spoons, people, what's the difference? God says to him, it's really quite simple. Love requires one skill. These people learned early on to care for one another, to accept one another, to feed one another. They learned that they're stronger together. While the self-centered, self-focused, and narrow-minded tend to think only of themselves. When we forget our interdependence on each other, we will starve. Emotionally, spiritually, and physically. When we get so focused on going it alone, we're spiritually malnourished. When we're malnourished, we ourselves can't accept, love, and forgive others. We become lethargic to the work of God's kingdom in our community. We are to feed each other with spoonfuls of compassion, kindness, gentleness, and forgiveness, and patience. Not because we're special, but because we have a special calling to be Jesus Christ in a broken world. I'm thinking, I'm convinced there's something missing from that parable. The story wasn't complete. What would have happened if the people in the room who had figured out how to feed each other took those long spoons outside of that room and taught the others how to feed each other as well? How would the story be different? As we begin this six-week journey looking at real life and real community. We'll talk a lot about what the community of faith looks like, things we do as a community of faith and how we feed each other, not not necessarily literally food, but yes, we we do that pretty well, actually, but how we feed each other emotionally and spiritually. But always remember, never ever lose sight of the fact that we are called to be a community of faith, not just so that we can support each other, but so that we can be strengthened to witness to the greater community at large. As we begin this journey, let us ask ourselves, 
How long is our spoon? And are we using it to feed others with the love of Christ? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us next week as we continue our series on real life, real community. See you then.